now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day where the great cocaine bag mystery uh, continues and deepens in the White House. There's actually all kinds of satirical photographs that have been posted on social media showing uh, President Biden with a whole pile of um, white powder on his desk. Is this justified? Is this going to be finally the scandal that brings down the Biden administration? Uh, it seems unlikely, but we will get to that. We will also get to a new report by Roy Teixeira, who used to be a partisan Democrat. Uh, he is a Latin, uh, Latino commentator who uh, co-wrote a book with John Judas at one point about the coming Democratic majority. And one of his arguments in the book was that with more and more Hispanics in America, the uh, Republicans were doomed. The Democrats were going to run everything. Now he has a piece in the Washington Post saying uh, there's no question the Democrats are in trouble with Hispanic voters. And if a Democratic candidate runs for president, it's going to be a very, very big handicap for him and very tough for him to win that 70, 80 percent of the Hispanic vote that they've been getting traditionally. Why the change? We will talk about that with uh, one of the leading Latino voices in the United States, Ruben Navarrete, a great friend of this show. We will be talking about that coming up. We'll also be talking about the various candidates on the stump, uh, some doing very well, others not so much. And uh, meanwhile, Kamala Harris, speaking about not doing so well. Uh, first of all, there's a remarkable aspect about this uh, concerning the uh, bag of cocaine that was found in the White House. MSNBC reports that the White House is now claiming the cocaine was found in a much more secure place near the Situation Room and next to where, for example, the Vice President's vehicle is parked. Uh, what does that mean? Well, maybe it helps to explain why she gives answers like this. Uh, that uh, are so demonstrable uh, concerning her ability to express herself and in a, in a persuasive and memorable way. This is Kamala Harris explaining culture, which is, quote, a reflection of our moment and our time, but she does better than that. Listen, clip one. Well, I think culture is... It is a reflection of our moment and our time, right? And, and, and present culture is the way we express how we're feeling about the moment. And, and we should always find times to express how we feel about the moment. That is a reflection of joy because, you know, it comes in the morning. <laughs> we have to find ways to also express the way we feel about the moment in terms of just having language and, and, and a connection to how people are experiencing life. And I think about it in that way, too. Can you imagine having to listen to that for eight years? 
Because if uh, she ends up becoming president, I mean, of, of course, she is going to want to get a second term. Uh, it's just, it's just nonsense. It doesn't add up. And then there's story time uh, to to go back to this story, which I think she's done an even better job of explaining the story about the frogs and the pots. Uh, here is. Uh, uh, our beloved Vice President Kamala Harris, clip two. And I would also ask this of all the friends in the sisterhood here. You know that, that thing about the frogs in the pots? Okay, so here it goes. There's two pots of water and there's two frogs. In one pot of water, you put the frog in and you slowly turn up the heat. And that frog's kind of like, oh, it's getting kind of warm in here. <laughs> and then the heat keeps going up to boiling, and that frog perishes. In the other pot, you turn up the heat up on high, get that water boiling, you put the frog in it, he's going to jump out. Let's not be that first frog. <laughs> Let's not be that first frog. No. So let's jump out of the hot water now in what regard is she talking uh it seems deeply deeply unclear uh there's also a a piece and a number of pieces that appear today including my own piece in newsweek which i urge you to read we should link to it at our website at michaelmedved.com there's a great deal more talk about the need for a third party uh there's a piece by carl rove in the wall street journal uh, under the headline, Throw the Grumpy Old Men Out, talking about the grumpy old men, the 80-year-old uh, Joe Biden and the 77-year-old uh, Donald J. Trump. And uh, let's replace them by some other candidates who might actually generate some enthusiasm in this country. There's another piece by a political scientist named Drutman who says what we really need is not new candidates, uh, we need a new political party. And what would that new political party mean? We will get to that very directly. There is also a uh, dark horse candidate for president who is arguably the most powerful person in corporate America. Uh, and we're talking about Jamie Dimon, who is the uh, CEO of uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase. He um, spoke about American exceptionalism at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. And one thing you've got to admit is he was a lot more impressive and lucid than, than Kamala Harris speaking on anything. Uh, here is Jamie Dimon, clip 16. America has the best hand ever dealt of any country on this planet today, ever. Okay, and you know, Americans don't fully appreciate what I'm about to say. We have peaceful, wonderful neighbors in Canada and Mexico. We've got the biggest military barriers ever built called the Atlantic and the Pacific. We have all the food, water, and energy we will ever need. Okay, we have the best military on the planet, and we will for as long as we have the best economy. And if you're a liberal, listen closely to me in that one. Okay, because the Chinese would love to have our economy. We have the best universities on the planet. They're great ones elsewhere, but these are the best. We still educate, uh, you know, most of, most of the kids who start businesses around the world. We have a rule of law, which is exceptional. If you don't believe me, and we talk about Britain, Brazil, Russia, India, Venezuela, Argentina, uh, China, India, 
believe me, it's not quite there. We have a, a magnificent work ethic. We have innovation from the core of our bones. You can ask anyone in this room, what can you do to be more productive? Ask your assistants, factory floors, we do it. It's not just the Steve Jobs, it's the broad death. We're the widest and deepest financial markets the world's ever seen, okay? And if you, I just made a list of these things, and maybe I missed something. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And we have it today. Yes, we have problems. But you know, I, when I hear people down, if you travel around the world, I mean, get an airplane, travel around the world, and go to all these other countries, and tell me what you think. Okay, this is profound, and it's important. And why is it that people assume that you're not going to win political support by telling the truth to people about how great things are in America? As he said, we've been dealt a very lucky hand. I mean, the fact that I was born in this country, my mother wasn't, but I was. I was born in the United States. That's the golden ticket. That's that's it. To be an American citizen, there's also a debate about the citizenship exam. They are, are going to be changing some of the questions on the citizenship exam, but there's some opposition to that because there's a feeling that it would be making it too difficult for people who are language impaired. So what are some of those questions that people need to prepare for to pass and become an American citizen, naturalized? We will get to that and to much more all coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. And we're going to say... The Michael Medved Show. We're not having that. We're not playing that. Michael Medved Show, uh, the uh, column today by Carl Rove, who was the guru, the uh, Svengali, the leader behind the scenes for the two successful Bush for President campaigns in 2000 and in 2004. 2004 is the last time since 1988 that a Republican candidate for president has won a majority of the popular vote. Isn't that amazing? That was George W. Bush running for re-election and uh, who got over 51% of the popular vote. In any event, Carl Rove writes in the Wall Street Journal today, and I think it's an important column, the 2024 presidential race is shaping up as the race few people really want. Neither the octogenarian Democratic incumbent nor the near-octogenarian Republican frontrunner is popular. The June 13th uh, Economist YouGov poll found that only 33% of voters want Donald Trump to even run for president. And 26% want Joe Biden to run for president. Strong majorities, 56% and 59%, respectively, would prefer they stay out. In other words, you have 56% of the country saying, please, President Trump, don't run for president. And 59% saying, please, Joe Biden, don't run for president. Well, what is that about? How do you overcome that public reluctance to uh, support either of these two guys? 38% have positive views of Mr. Biden, while 48% give him a negative rating, 
with 38% very negative. Mr. Trump is even worse. Mr. Trump is 34% positive. That's one-third of the country. Uh, 53% negative with 44% very negative. 38% very negative for Biden. 44% very negative for Trump. And these polls may also reveal a desire, writes Karl Rove, for a generational shift. Americans may think we can do better for president than two men who will be a combined 160 years old by the time we vote on them next year. And then he goes off to talk historically about uh, generational domination of uh, the presidency. I mean, right now we're in a period where baby boomers or near baby boomers are dominating everything and have been for a long time. I mean, uh, if you talk about high school class, uh, Mitt Romney and and uh, um, Hillary Clinton were in the same high school class. People nominated for president were the class of 65 or the class of 64 in high school almost entirely. And, uh, and then he talks about the Civil War era where quite naturally with the great majority of American men who were eligible serving in uh, combat in the Civil War we have a whole string of presidents who were Civil War officers or in the one case Grover, Grover Cleveland who is a, a one guy in all history who has done what President Trump is trying to do which is to lose a presidential race and then come back and win the next presidential race. Uh, Cleveland had hired a replacement, which was legal at that time. You could, uh, uh, if you were busy at home and you were supporting your family, if you had enough money, you could pay a replacement. When it came to something like $300 and someone would go uh, to the front in your place. It may be time for another generational shift, writes Karl Rove. It's within the power of the people to bring about voters, not party bosses, will decide both parties' nominees. The Republican contest already features leaders much younger than Mr. Trump. They include Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, 44, former uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, 51, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, 57, Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, 60, which makes him 17 years younger than Trump. Former Vice President Mike Pence, 64. And uh, North Dakota Governor Doug Ger uh, Burgum, who's 66. Potential Democratic contenders, some of them well-known, others not, are decades younger than Mr. Biden. Among them are Governors Phil Murphy of New Jersey, 65, Gavin Newsom of California, who's 55, uh, Jared Polis of Colorado, who's 48, J.B. Pritzker of Illinois, who's 58, and Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, who's 51. There are also Vice President Kamala Harris, heaven help us, 58, and Senators Cory Booker of New Jersey, 54, and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, 63 as well as Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, who's 52, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who's 41, and Infrastructures are Mitch Landrew of 62. Now, Pete Buttigieg or Mitch Landrew uh, running for president at this point, I think very unlikely because they are younger. They have time to wait, but it won't happen this time. Uh, Carl Rove goes on and says, 
For now, most Republican and Democratic primary voters lean heavily uh, toward Messrs. Trump and Biden. But a rematch between these two old men would be nastier and uglier than it was in 2020. Turnout could even drop because so many voters are turned off. Uh, our nation is deeply divided and angry. It faces tremendous challenges at home and real dangers abroad. These are best confronted by energetic new leadership. Whichever party figures this out will have the upper hand next year. I think he's probably right. And right now, without an incumbent president, I think the uh, Republicans have a better chance of figuring it out and taking action. And meanwhile, the White House is trying to take action on the mysterious bag of cocaine. Here's a quick report from uh, MSNBC, clip 11. Changes where this was found. It was found, um, by my observation, in a much more secure place, limited access place, than that West Wing reception area. It's still a publicly trafficked, a frequently trafficked place, but it's down near the Situation Room, right off West Executive, down below. And normal people just average people just can't get in there even with the entry from the northwest gate well let me let me bring you up to date with the reporting that i have what we have learned is that there are in fact two west wing entrances you know that i know that but for the benefit of our audience and now the investigation has progressed and so they're saying the west executive entrance which as you noted is closer to the situation room and closer uh to uh the navy mess where there's the facilities for food and so forth it is uh, also next to West Executive Drive. That's where, for example, the vice president's vehicle is parked. Okay, the vice president's vehicle. Um, there's more. We will bring you more. We'll also talk about uh, a, uh, a new milestone in terms of polling for Joe Biden. Something that he will welcome? Well, we'll tell you. Coming up on The Medved Show. Are you... Michael Medved show. Uh, one of the things about the cocaine in the White House scandal is that uh, Hunter Biden was not in the White House and had not visited the White House at the time that this cocaine appeared. He was in Camp David, which, by the way, would have been a much more sensible place to bring his cocaine. There's no sensible place to bring cocaine. But Camp David is a presidential retreat. It was originally set up by President Eisenhower. It was named after his grandson, uh, David Eisenhower, who ended up in one of the all-time great Republican weddings of the century in getting married the president's grandson to President Nixon's daughter. And uh, But that's a different story. Not, neither of them had any involvement with cocaine or bags of mysterious white powder or anything of the kind. The point being that um, Hunter Biden was, I believe, with his wife, Melissa, and his child, uh, who they call Bo. Uh, he was with um, President Trump and Dr. Biden, the first lady, in uh, Camp David, which is a very scenic, a gorgeous place in the Catoctin Mountains of Maryland. And I know most people don't realize they have mountains in Maryland. These are not mountains like the Sierras or the Cascades, but they're very scenic. In any event, um, 
the uh, uh, the the question about the cocaine in the White House is uh, really related to a problem that uh, was a very big part of the Jimmy Carter presidency. And this is appropriate because, as I was mentioning to you before, there's a new milestone for uh, President Biden, not a milestone he welcomes. According to the average of polling in 538, which analyzes these things very carefully, the Joe Biden approval rating is now the lowest uh, that anyone has had since Jimmy Carter at this stage in his term. What does this have to do with uh, cocaine? Be there was a marijuana uh, scandal involving uh, Hamilton Jordan, who was the president's chief of staff. And uh, a number of people who didn't like Hamilton Jordan, may rest in peace, called him Han Hamilton uh, or Hannibal Jerkin. Uh, he... <laughs> He got into a great deal of trouble. At one point, he made a comment at a state dinner about uh, the breasts of the First Lady of Egypt. Uh, he said, boy, those are like the two twin pyramids of the Nile, right? Uh, <laughs> which, you know, you just don't do that. At a, but uh, in any event, the... Uh, uh, use of marijuana or the reported use of marijuana, I think it's admitted use of marijuana, while he was a chief of staff to the President of the United States, didn't go well. Now, it's very hard to imagine any of these fairly straight-laced uh, Biden staffers uh, using, using blow, using snow. And uh, an MSNBC reporter says uh, it may be impossible to find out who actually brought this cocaine to the White House uh, because, well, he explains. Uh, listen, uh, clip 14. Yeah, our own Kelly O'Donnell reports that it's possible that we might not even get uh, to learn who actually brought uh, this small bag is. So I'm sure that's a sigh of relief to whoever sort of made the boneheaded move of bringing a bag of cocaine to the White yeah. House. But because this is in a, uh, you know, not an area that, uh, you know, is highly trafficked, but not wasn't necessarily covered by cameras all that well, you know, it's an area that a decent amount of people had access to. It just makes that investigation a little bit difficult. So, you know, this could all end without, um, you know, necessarily anyone being named as the person who was responsible for bringing that bag of cocaine to the White House. Okay, though the fact that it is not a heavily trafficked area, as it was originally reported, in fact, here's a flashback to a comment yesterday by Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press spokesman, about where the cocaine was found. What she was saying was simply not true, as it turns out. This is clip 12. To clarify for us, where exactly inside the West Wing the substance was discovered? I'm not going to get into uh, specifics. What I can say is when people visit the West Wing, uh, there, is, uh, an er there is the area of the West Wing where uh, it is highly uh, traveled, uh, and that is what happens. People come through this particular area, it's highly traveled. I'm just not going to get into specifics. I'm not going to get into, uh, uh, not going to get ahead of the Secret Service, and so I'll let them speak to that. There are a couple of primary entrances into the West Wing. There's the one with which we're all familiar right outside of the driveway where the Marine stands when the President's in, in the West Wing. And there's another entrance uh, off West Executive Avenue. Can you explain which, which entrance we're talking I'm about? I'm going to let the Secret Service speak to that. Okay. 
Uh, can you explain why you, you can't explain it? I mean, you, you described it as a heavily traveled area. That's what the Secret, I'm just saying what the Secret Service uh, said. We got this from the Secret Service, so I'm sharing a little bit more with you uh, from here. But again, it's under their purview. It's under investigation. They will, they will have more specifics down the road. Uh, as they are uh, looking into this, we are confident that they will get to the bottom of this. And so I'm just going to leave it to them. Okay, the one thing that I hope is that, yes, it's laughable and it's it's appalling, but that somehow this doesn't regularize uh, or normalize cocaine usage. Uh, cocaine usage is profoundly dangerous and damaging. And, of course, particularly in today's world where it's linked so frequently to methamphetamines and to fentanyl and to... Uh, other even more dangerous so-called recreational drugs. There's a mid-level Biden staffer whose name is Andrew Bates. He was aboard Air Force One, and uh, he also spoke about the uh, cocaine found at the White House and responded to a reporter who wanted to know, quite logically, what's going to happen next. Uh, listen, this is clip nine. One more on the cocaine. Uh... I understand the Secret Service is conducting an investigation. If the Secret Service is able to determine the individual responsible, will the Secret Service and, the, and will the White House commit to transparency in this and making that information public? I'm going to defer to the Secret Service professionals who are carrying this out. I'm just not going to engage on hypotheticals about it. Um, I, I, would, I would suggest you contact them for anything more. You know, this is one of those things where Joe Biden missed an opportunity to actually be presidential and decisive. And to be very clear that uh, once we find out who brought the cocaine into the White House, uh, that person will be terminated because uh, that that is actually somebody who. Uh, so what happens if it's Kamala Harris? Uh, <laughs> her too. Uh, but boy, that would solve a bunch of problems all at once, wouldn't it? I, I mean, she is not a, an ideal running mate. By the way, do I think that uh, a President Biden would have the uh, guts to ask for her resignation if it uh, turns out she was uh, bringing in cocaine into the White House? Yeah, I think it's highly appropriate. If it was his son... Uh, but it doesn't appear that it was his son because his son wasn't there. Uh, Mike Pence is not suspected. Uh, he was asked about it yesterday, and given the fact that he had once been vice president, he had once been a regular at that White House, here is what the former vice president had to say on this very sensitive subject. Listen. Hugh Hewitt's radio show this morning, and he said, if this had happened in your old White House, uh, what do you think the news would be covering? <laughs> right? I mean, look, they, they need to get to the bottom of it. And it's a very serious matter. Illicit drugs found. I, I heard it was in the library. I heard it was in other places at the White House. It can be zero tolerance, and uh, they've got to get to the bottom of it. The American people deserve Okay, zero tolerance. Let's get to the bottom of it. The American people deserve it. Uh, that's uh, very good for Mike Pence. He was also uh, out on the campaign trail in uh, Iowa, and he was accosted by a very articulate uh, Trump supporter at a town hall and asking, 
did Mike Pence regret the fact, looking back, that he didn't do what Trump wanted him to do, which is, quote, to send the votes back to the states? He explained everything. Coming. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, I've been trying to follow all of the Republicans on the campaign trail and at least two of the Democrats. I, I can't bring myself to follow Marianne Williamson, sorry. Uh, but uh, Robert F. Kennedy um, is interesting. I think he's extremely negative in what he's offering the American people. But uh, he's interesting, and there are lots of Republicans who are very interesting. One of those who is most interesting is Mike Pence, because you would think that if uh, anyone were thinking about uh, uh, a replacement for Donald Trump, it would be natural that Mike Pence, who was a very successful vice president, widely admired, widely accepted by every Republican, that Mike Pence would be the front runner right now. But he's not, and he's not because uh, they are a lot of people who are big Trump supporters who believe that uh, Mike Pence was a Judas figure that he betrayed the political messiah. And uh, he was confronted at a town hall meeting in Iowa by a, um, a lady. Uh, you can tell she's a lady by her voice. You don't really see her. But uh, she's very articulate, very passionate, big supporter of President Trump, and she identified herself as such. And she wanted to know a perfectly reasonable question. If facing one of the biggest challenges of his life, the question of uh, either doing his constitutional duty, as it's spelled out pretty clearly in the Constitution, or remaining personally loyal to President Trump and doing something that was not constitutional, which was, quote, sending the votes back to the states, if uh, if Pence had any regrets about the way he handled the counting and certification of the Electoral College votes on January 6, 2021, here's, first of all, the question, and uh, then Mike Pence's answer. Uh, listen, clip seven. And all those wonderful things that you and Trump were doing together would be continuing and this country would be on the right path. Do you ever second guess yourself? That was a constitutional right that you had to send those votes back to the states. It was not like you were going to personally elect him. We all know by the number of votes that were there who won that election. You well, changed history for this country. Yeah, let, me, let me speak to the issue because I think it's it's an issue that continues to be misunderstood. I know by God's grace I did exactly what the Constitution of the United States required of me that day. Okay, and so what did the Constitution require of him on that day? Uh, clip 8. The Constitution of the United States in Article 2 says the job of the Vice President is to serve as the presiding officer of a joint session where you open and count the votes. Don't take my word for it, go read the Constitution. Not really, I say this with great affection and respect. The Constitution is very clear. 
My job was to oversee a session of Congress where objections could be heard. And I made sure that objections would be recognized. So we would hear whatever evidence or whether debate there was. But the Constitution says you open and count the votes, no more, no less. The Constitution affords no authority for the Vice President or anyone else to reject votes or return votes to the states. Okay. It, it, it's incredibly clear. And by the way, one of the things that uh, that Pence did is he put out a page and a half letter citing the Constitution very clearly that he had no right as vice president to say, no, I don't accept this vote. Uh, and the idea that after he wouldn't accept it, after there had been recounts and there had been lawsuits, some 60 lawsuits, really, I mean, amazing. Uh, and and then there was another uh, item, and uh, this was uh, another candidate for president, Ron DeSantis. He was asked about January 6th, and he gave uh, an answer that I think is highly forgettable, but there was a response to his answer from another candidate that's unforgettable. Here's the forgettable response, clip three. I wasn't anywhere near Washington that day. I have nothing to do with what happened that day. Obviously, I didn't enjoy seeing, you know, what would happen. But we've got to go forward on this stuff. We cannot be looking backwards and be mired in the past. Okay. Uh, Chris Christie was asked about that. And uh, here was his response on CNN. Listen. He wasn't anywhere near Washington. Did he have a TV? Was he alive that day? Did he see what was going on? I mean, that's one of the most ridiculous answers I've heard in this race so far. You don't have an opinion about January 6th, except to say, I didn't particularly enjoy what happened. People were killed. That's exactly a strong statement. People were killed, Caitlin, as you know, that day on Capitol Hill defending the Capitol. Um, we had members of Congress who were running for their lives. We had people trying to hunt down the Vice President of the United States Channing hang Mike Pence. And Donald Trump the entire time sat outside the Oval Office in that little dining room of his, eating a well-done cheeseburger and watching TV and doing nothing to stop what was going on until it got to the point where even he could no longer stand it. And he finally, at four something in the afternoon, put out a video asking people to leave the Capitol. And Ron DeSantis doesn't have any opinion on that. Uh, that's actually, <laughs> it seems to me, a fairly commanding. This is why uh, people look forward to seeing Chris Christie on the debate stage and uh, why probably uh, uh, he will get there. And, uh, and Trump may decide not to show up. Another candidate who has been fairly fearless in telling people the truth, even if they may not like to hear some of it, is Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, former federal prosecutor, uh, a three-term congressman. Uh, here is Asa Hutchinson on why, despite the fact that he's 72 years old, he still thinks he's youthful enough to be president. This is clip 17. Well, you know, everybody's in a different circumstance, but uh, I don't know about you, but I played basketball last week. 
Uh, I still play full court basketball. And so, uh, uh, you know, there's, uh, I've been blessed with good health. Now it's also a question of, of what the alternatives are. Uh, whenever you look at Donald Trump and you look at Joseph Biden, I'm bringing youthful vigor to the campaign. And so it's young in perspective. Okay, that seems to me to be uh, I- entirely true. Uh, there was um, also a, uh, a another uh, statement by uh, Ron DeSantis who celebrated the Supreme Court not just for ending discrimination by colleges and universities based on race, but saying this about corporate America. Uh, clip six. Well, I think the idea that we should treat students based on race rather than merit violates the law and the Constitution. In Florida, we don't have that. Uh, we have colorblind admissions, right. and that works very well, and it's fair. And we also say, because we understand some school, schools may be better than others, if you finish in the top 10% of your class in high school, you can get into a Florida university, and we'll make sure you have a spot for that. Uh, but we're not giving up on the basis of race, and I think that that's important. So I think it was a good ruling. Now, in Florida, we've gone even farther with our universities because, yes, we don't have uh, race-based admissions, but we actually eliminated this whole idea of DEI. Uh, they say it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. In reality, it's ideology being imposed um, on the institution, and it's really uh, division, exclusion, and indoctrination the way it's done. We don't think that that has a part in our public institution, so we nixed it. Okay, it's going to be much tougher to try to nix it nationwide. Though, when he talks about diversity, uh, exclusion, and uh, integration, uh, really the the emphasis on race-first evaluations of Americans, uh, he's right, of course, to express impatience and disgust with that approach. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about what's happening with the Hispanic vote. Uh, a major piece in the Washington Post about, yeah, it's true, the evidence shows Hispanics are moving Republican. Why and what can be done to encourage that move? We'll talk about that with Ruben Navarrete and much more coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth. 